Our speaker, I want by posing a question. The question is this. How many evolutionists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is none. The bulb changes all by itself. The, the reason that that uh, small joke is humorous is because it illustrates the absurdity of a non-Christian worldview. The Bible tells us that not only is atheism incorrect or inaccurate, but atheism is foolish. And it's foolish because it is an unbiblical worldview. Our focus at this conference and the Sovereign Redeemer Fellowship's emphasis is to educate Christians, believers, on Christian worldview. And in particular, what it means to do what Jesus said is the greatest commandment, loving God with our minds. And to that end, we have has many credentials, many initials after his name, if you will. In the world's eyes, he's certainly very qualified. Uh, Dr. Greg Bonson took his Bachelor of Arts degrees uh, from Westmont College, a Christian college in Santa Barbara. He did that magna cum laude. He received simultaneously the Master of Divinity degree as well as the Master of Theology degree from Westminster Seminary. He then went into the Dragon Slaying University of Southern California and took the Ph.D. with several high honors and commendations. Aside from that stuff, though, he also has extensive experience and extensive Christian service. Dr. Bonson is an ordained minister in the conservative uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, incidentally, Sovereign Redeemer Fellowship, we hope, will be part of that same denomination soon. Dr. Bonson will be preaching for us Sunday morning. Uh, we meet at the YMCA at 10 a.m. Dr. Bonson is an ordained minister. He's been a pastor. Uh, he has been a headmaster at a Christian school. He has been a seminary professor. He has been a debater, debating all sorts of individuals from the area of gun control to does God exist to uh, dealing with the Catholic-Protestant uh, dichotomy. He's also a father of four. In fact, his youngest, I think, just had his birthday yesterday. So this is a man who is certainly well-credentialed within the church and also even in the world's eyes. But don't be intimidated by all this kind of stuff. Dr. Bonson, if you haven't heard him previously, speaks very clearly. He's not uh, some highfalutin, in-the-clouds sort of lecturer. He is compelling, but he is a compassionate person. He is confident, but not with arrogance. He is someone who... I suspect you'll come away very favorably impressed with. Having uh, gotten to know him briefly, I think that he's very approachable, and you'd all to make yourself known to him. I think you'll have a favorable impression. One thing I do know categorically, though, is that if you have eyes that see and ears that hear, you will have an impression that Jesus Christ will be magnified when you leave this room today, that you will have a much greater appreciation for the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see... Dr. Bonson is a servant, first of all, of Christ. He is a servant in Christ's church, and he is a servant to Christ's kingdom. Having said that, join me please in welcoming our teacher for tonight, as well as all day tomorrow, Dr. Greg Bonson. Well, thank you, Jeff. I'm not going to be able to live up to half of the nice things that you've said, but I do appreciate you making me feel welcome, and I'm happy that you could be here. I've come to Idaho, a state that's known for potatoes, a fellow from California, a state that's known for fruits and nuts. 
I hope that you won't hold that against me, that you'll have an open mind what I have to tell you today. In California, we recently had an initiative that was voted upon, received a great deal of national attention, Proposition 174, known as the Voucher Initiative, which would have, if it had passed, allowed parents to receive from the state a voucher uh, to be spent at any school of their choice, uh, private or uh, government-run, whatever it may be, so that they would have the freedom to educate their children as they wished. Now, this initiative went down um, uh, resoundingly in defeat, <clears throat> although we must remember that of those people who voted in the state of California, somewhat um, around 30% of them were quite willing, even though there was massive uh, um, and sadly state school-sponsored opposition to the uh, proposition, massive ad campaigns against it. Still 30% of people who said we just don't want to be uh, compelled to be part of a monopoly system where the state educates our children. It is not difficult in this day to present a case against state-funded education. The fact that it's difficult to, um, to get the political grip, you know, to loosen up on state education, it may be difficult to pass an initiative against uh, resounding financial odds and uh, campaigning doesn't change the fact that even those who are within the state educational system know that um, the time is short for them because people will not long put up with the nonsense that the state schools have come to represent. Now, it would be easy enough for people to say, yes, but Dr. Bonson, you're from that weird state of California. Uh, California does tend to be out on the extreme edge on many things, and maybe things are not as bad in Idaho or uh, in middle America or wherever it may be as they are in California. That may be true, however, yes, it could be amassed against state education comes from writers and surveys and studies that are done all over the United States, not just in a strange place like uh, the left coast of California. For over two decades, both the SAT scores and the ACT national test scores, the averages, have been steadily declining in America. In fact, it was uh, over 10 years ago when the Wall Street Journal published an article entitled The Great Classroom Debacle. And in that article, it was noted that a Hudson Institute study had, and I'm quoting, painstakingly assembled available pupil achievement test scores from throughout the nation and found an almost unrelieved picture of decline in scholastic performance, quite unrelated to economic background, race, or geographic location. You see, it's not just in California that people are so concerned that there will be at least an effort made to have a voucher system to break the back of state school monopoly in education. It's throughout the nation that people are very concerned, and they have been concerned for some time. The decline began over 20 years ago. 10 years ago, if you watch the literature in this area, as I do, um, you begin to see a plethora of articles and studies published and, and television programs talking about this. There are great problems in the classroom in the state educational system. 
But that's not the intrinsic rationale for Christian education. You see, I could spend your time this evening going over the, the data. I think I could demonstrate convincingly that the state school system is afraid of competition because it cannot compete. It does not have quality education. Nearly a quarter of the students that graduate from public high schools around our nation are functionally illiterate. And what does that tell you in itself? If you ran a business the way that the states run the educational establishment, um, you'd be out of your business. You'd just be a, a, a failure. The reason the state schools continue is because they don't have to compete. They're not allowed to fail, if you will, because the powers that be, the political arm, as well with its uh, taxing um, authority, continues to subsidize a really um, failure of a business when it comes to education. It would not be difficult to spend the time showing you, therefore, that the state schools uh, are not to be preferred, and you ought to be thinking about educating your children either at home or in a, a Christian school or a, a church-run school, whatever it may be. I think that could be easily demonstrated. But that would not be, I think, faithful to my calling as a minister of the gospel, because that is not the intrinsic reason for Christian education. I don't believe in Christian education because the state schools are doing a bad job. If they were doing a bang-up job, if they were doing a wonderful job, if their test scores were tremendously better than they really are, I would still be here this evening to give this lecture. I don't believe in Christian education simply to remove our children from the morally uh, bad social influences of the public school system. A generation ago, I'll date myself here, back in the, the good old days, the 1950s, and uh, at least coming into the early 60s, a generation ago, when we spoke of misbehavior in school, I, re I can remember this, when we spoke of misbehavior in school, we were referring to things like chewing gum, running in the halls, talking out of turn, having detention because you didn't turn in your homework or you were acting up in class or something. But, you know, we can smile in, in, you know, in a kind of a benign way about that. Isn't that cute? It's just terrible what has come about in our own generation. Now referral forms in the public schools have the following problems. Alcoholic beverages, drugs, arson, false alarms, possession of firearms, physical attack or threat against authorities and against teachers and against students, vandalism, possession of or distribution of controlled substances, theft, forgery, gambling. I mean, the public schools have become nothing more but a mirror of all the moral muck of our own society. There's an epidemic number of teenage pregnancies and abortions, the number of young people that are introduced to the drug culture and so forth. But I want to make it clear again that I would be wasting your time if I came all the way to Idaho to argue in favor of Christian education on the basis of the morally uh, bad social influence of the public school system. It is not because of declining test scores, and it's not because your children are going to be introduced to um, uh, morally influences that we should believe in Christian education. 
the intrinsic reason that we should support Christian education, I want to argue this evening, is out of love for our children. When Jeff was introducing me, he mentioned that just yesterday, my youngest um, had a birthday. Michael turned 18 years old. I, um, earlier in the week, happened to be in Seattle uh, doing some ministerial work, and uh, I knew I was going to be coming to Boise at the end of the week, but I wanted to go back to Southern California, even if it was only for one day, so I could be with Michael on his birthday and come up here, because I love this boy. I love all my children. I have four. Michael's the youngest. He graduated from high school um, this last June. And uh, when I think about his being born and what that precious little bundle of humanity was to me and what my hopes were for him when he was born and for all of my children, that's what animates me to come to Boise and to encourage you to not only believe in, but to support and to make use of Christian education. In your Bibles, turn please to Malachi, the fourth chapter. Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. And I'd like to look at the last chapter of the last prophet of the Old Testament in the very last verse of that last chapter. This is the last inspired declaration from Jehovah, Lord of the Covenant, before the people of God would wait about 400 years, and then we'd have the birth of the Messiah. And what is it that the Old Testament ends on? What is the note that leaves us waiting now for the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament is about? Verse 6 tells us, about this Elijah who will come before the great and terrible day of Jehovah. Verse 6 says, And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Can you imagine what a cursed situation it would be if parents did not love their children? And we many times uh, take for granted that the influence of Christianity in Western culture and in the United States of America is something that has just been universal. It has not always been the case that parents have had the kind of tender and, um, and uh, solicitous attitude toward their children that we, we have come to expect in our own culture. Malachi tells us that when the Messiah comes, when Elijah, who will be the forerunner of the Messiah, comes and the great day of the Lord arrives, when the Messianic age arrives, what we're going to see is the heart of the fathers will be turned to the well, this alleged generation gap and the kind of hostility and antipathy that is supposed to be represented by it is going to be overcome because the hearts of the children will be turned to their fathers as well. You see, I want my son Michael, I want all of my children, I think just as you want your children, to come to share with me what I consider important in life, precious in life. I want them to live the kind of life that their father believes in. In fact, I hope they live it better than I do. I want for them the very best. And I don't mean simply the very best shoes and the very best basketballs and the very best cars and houses and all the rest. 
I want them to know what life is all about and to live it to its fullest, to have an abundant life, and above all, to have eternal life. I love my children, and what I want to leave to them, although I do believe in leaving a heritage and inheritance in worldly terms, far more importantly, I want to leave them the inheritance of being members of the kingdom of God. The reason why I believe in Christian education is because God, through the work of the Messiah, has turned my heart to my children. They are the most important thing in earthly terms that I have. They are the most important possession that God has given me. It's not uncommon for Christians to hear that when God gives us money, we hold that money as stewards of his resources. That in fact, everything that we have, whatever's in your bank account or in your checkbook or in your wallet right now is not really your own. Though God has given you the freedom to use it and to make decisions regarding it, the fact is all your decisions should be made in a way that please the Lord who made such possessions, such wealth possible for you. Your money is really a resource entrusted to you by God for safekeeping and, and wise and proper and prosperous use. But you see, far more important than our money is our children. Our children have been given to us not just as a resource, but as the heritage of the Lord. Look at Psalm 127. Psalm 127 tells us in the third verse, Behold, children are a heritage of Jehovah, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Those of you who have children, you know very well it's not just out of nostalgia that I remind you of this. The day that your children were born, if you knew the Lord then, you understood what this verse is all about. The fruit of the womb is God's reward. What a blessing. And he's given us these children who really belong to him for safekeeping and for proper education, educing from them, drawing out of them what will be pleasing to God, building up in their lives a testimony for God. Behold, children are a heritage of Jehovah. They belong first and foremost, not to us, but to Him. And that's why I believe in Christian education, because I love my children. And I'm sure that you love your children, too. And if we stop through, I hope I can convince you by the end of our hour that out of love for our children and covenant faithfulness to our God, we must make sure that they are educated in a way that pleases God and that conforms to his revelation. It's a well-known verse in Matthew 22, verse 21 where Jesus tells us that we are to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. People had come to Jesus tempting him, wanting to uh, put him to the test and, uh, and expose that he was mistaken as a teacher, and they put this tough question to him, should we pay our taxes or not? <clears throat> many Christians today wonder about that. Should we pay our taxes? They're, they're going to so many causes which are ungodly and that we don't approve of. Should we pay our taxes? And Jesus, as you know, takes the coin and he asks, whose image is on the coin? The answer is that it's Caesar's image. And then Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If Caesar's you know, image is on the coin, then when Caesar calls back the coin, you give it to him. You pay your taxes. 
And many times we look at that text and, and just consider the socio-political consequences, but you have to remember that Jesus goes on to say, and render to God the things that are God's. And that should lead us to ask, well, where is God's image then? If Caesar's image is upon the coin, and therefore Caesar has the right to tax us, where is God's image to be found? Well, of course, man is made as the image of God, according to Scripture. All of us are made as God's image, and that includes our children. If children are a heritage of the Lord, as the psalmist has taught us, when Jesus says we are to render to God the things that are God's, then that means in addition to our neighbors and our political rulers and ourselves, but our children must be rendered to the Lord. We must turn them over to Him. We don't think of our children as being their own property. We don't think of our children as being our property. We think of our children as belonging to God. And for that reason, I've come to support Christian education in your midst. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, the Apostle Paul deals with a very awkward and unhappy situation in the church. And that's the situation where a believer finds himself or herself married to an unbeliever. And now the question is, what should be done? Should a divorce take place since there's this religious antagonism within the family? The couple don't see eye to eye. And uh, we can go into what the meaning of Paul's uh, uh, exhortations are here at some other time. Uh, Paul tells us that the unbeliever is willing to stay, that the believer should not divorce, and so forth. But in 1 Corinthians 7.14, as part of his reasoning, he tells us, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the brother. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Paul tells us that the children of Christians, even one Christian in a marriage, the children of Christians are in the eyes of God not seen as unclean, not seen as common or part of the world, but rather seen as holy. This word holy means both in Hebrew and in Greek to be set aside, to be consecrated, taken out of common use, taken out of mundane, ordinary use, and set to a special purpose. Our children are not as the children of the world. We're not to look upon them as the same as all the rest. Now, of course, it's easy for parents to think, well, if my child's not like everybody else, my child's more beautiful than other children. My, my child's more talented than other children. My child's more wonderful than other children. That's not what we're referring to. Although I'm sure that's true of your children. The fact of the matter is, Paul's talking about your children being special because they are set apart to God. They are consecrated. They are holy. Our children belong to the Lord. And we are to render to the Lord the things that belong to the Lord. We are to give to God the things that are God's, and that includes our children. We cannot turn over our children to pagans to be brought up, to be educated, to be molded and formed in the way that they think, in the way that they respond to the world, in the plans that they make, 
the priorities that they have. We are not to give our children to those who do not love the same God that we love and do not seek to serve him and to follow his ways. Very simply put, it's an act of unfaithfulness to God. When we take our children, a message of the Lord given to us for safekeeping, children that are consecrated to the purposes of God, and we turn them over to people who will not honor the Lord, will not pay attention to the Lord, or in many ways will openly defy the Lord and try to bring them up to think and to act and to live in the same way. Jesus tells us in Luke 6, verse 40, what his own divine understanding of the relationship of, parent, excuse me, of teacher and student is. Luke, the sixth chapter, verse 40. There Jesus says, The disciple, the student, is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is perfected or matured, shall be as his teacher. The student is not above the teacher, but the student, as he is brought up or she is brought up, will be like the teacher. Now, that's not what the secular psychologists are telling us, although I think they would confirm that. This is not simply the word or the opinion of somebody like Dr. Bonson. This is the Lord Jesus himself telling us, you are to expect this. This is a general truth that students, when they are brought up, when they are matured or perfected, when they've reached the end of their course, will be like their teachers. And so if we entrust God's children that we've the privilege of raising, if we entrust those who have been consecrated to the purposes of God to teachers who do not honor God, who do not love him, and do not serve him, then what we are basically doing according to what Jesus teaches us is expecting them to be like those teachers, even though we've told God we want our children to be other than what those teachers are. We want our children to love the Lord with all of their heart, soul, strength, with all their minds, and yet we turn them over to people who don't love the Lord in that way. A student will naturally tend to become like his teacher. In Romans, the 12th chapter, at verse 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul tells us that we are not to be conformed to the world. I beseech you, brothers, he says, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And now listen, in verse 2 he says, and don't be fashioned according to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. We cannot expect that our children are going to grow up to be transformed by the renewing of their mind if we turn them over to the world. We are actually asking that our children now be conformed to the world. Learn to think like pagans think. Learn to think as unbelievers think. And then when you come home or when you go to Sunday school, Johnny, then what we're going to do is we're going to add something to that. 
So you're going to be just like all the other children in the world, but you're going to have the extra added ingredient that Jesus is your Savior. You know, there were probably was a time in your life, as there was in mine, when that's the way I saw Christianity, and I was dead wrong. That is not biblical at all. But it's easy for us to think, well, we have all these things in common. We see everything the way the world sees things, except religion. So we have a different view of uh, creation and, and, and sin and redemption. And so as Christians, we're just like the world, but we have this added attraction. The world gets all the way to third base, but we get home because we add their, the religious dimension about salvation available in Jesus Christ. But that's not what Paul tells us. We're not to be conformed to this world. We're not to think as the world thinks, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our mind renewing. Well, because we don't naturally think the way God wants us to think. Why do we have to prove the good, acceptable will of God? Because we don't naturally follow God's will. And when we turn our children over to people who do not have transformed minds, but are conformed to the world, Jesus tells you you should expect the student to grow up to be like his teacher. Your children will, apart from, of course, God intervening, your children, if they are raised by unbelievers, if they are educated to think as unbelievers think, to feel as unbelievers feel, to make decisions as unbelievers make decisions, to see the world as unbelievers see the world, your children will grow up to be conformed to the world. And again, I don't say this to make you feel bad. I don't say this to lay a guilt trip on you. And I certainly don't say it on the authority of my own opinion or insight. I come to you as a fellow Christian, as someone who is a parent who loves his children as you love your children. Do you want to do right by your children? Then don't turn them over to teachers who do not honor your God. Do not deny the holiness, the consecration of your children. But honor what they are, the heritage of the Lord, and raise them accordingly. The Bible tells us that the school, if you want to use that expression, that education, instruction in life, thinking, is really an extension of the life of the family. Education is not an extension of civic duty, although that is the prevailing point of view in the public schools. But I, I didn't come here tonight just to bang on the public schools and put that aside. From a positive standpoint, the Bible tells us that education is an extension of the life of the family. Let's see if I can demonstrate that to you. If you'll turn in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, let's look at verses 6 and 7. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. Just by way of introduction, remember that there was a time that Jesus was tempted with this question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responded that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. In saying this, he was quoting the Shema of Israel, which is just right before our reading here. You'll notice in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, Jehovah our God is one, and you shall love Jehovah your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Okay, so this is, if you will, the substance of our faith. This is the confession of faith of Israel. And Jesus affirms it as the great commandment, the greatest of the commandments. And following upon the declaration of this commandment from God through Moses, we read, 
And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be for frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the doorpost of thy house and upon thy gates. The word of God is to be something with which you are obsessed. I'm not going to be afraid of that word. God tells us we are to be thinking about his word all the time. As though it were written on the doorpost of our house, the gates of our city. We think about it when we go to bed, when we get up in the morning, when we sit down to eat, when we're walking in the way. The word of God is always on our minds. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Tomorrow's conference, I'll be talking more about that and the implications of it for us. But notice this, that if we are in covenant with God, if Jehovah is our God, and we hear this declaration, Jehovah is one, we're to love him, therefore, single-heartedly, not with a divided affection, not with divided loyalty, but everything we have is given to him, and our life is obsessed with his word. What are we to do? These words shall be upon your heart. Notice there is not an end to the declaration or the exhortation or the command at this point. It's easy enough to think, okay, well, of course, we individually as Christians are to have God's word upon our heart. We're supposed to live by the direction of God's word. But God says you're to have it on your heart and, and what is your covenant duty? What does the Lord your God require of you? What is it if you confess faith in this God and keep covenant with him that you're to do? You're not only to be obsessed with his word personally. He says, and you shall teach them diligently unto thy children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and lie down and rise up and all the rest. The point here is that parents have a covenant duty to educate their children, to see the world as God's world, to the world as faithful children of God, to obey him, to subdue all things to his glory, to think his thoughts after him. That is your covenant duty. But of course, it's not an onerous duty. I've already started tonight by telling you and I'm appealing to your hearts, you who are children, we love our children. We don't want them to grow up to be functional pagans. We don't want them to grow up to think as the world thinks, to respond as the world responds. In fact, it breaks our hearts, doesn't it? Now, I praise God that my children profess faith in the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean that they're perfect children. You know, there are times when my children make decisions or show attitudes or have priorities which I want to see taken away, and I want to see them to walk, you know, a more perfect walk with the Lord, to love Him, you know, more consistently, more purely, and so forth. It hurts us as Christian parents when we, are, we see our children defecting in any way, to whatever degree, from what we believe God wants of them. We must teach our children, therefore, to honor God and to think his thoughts after him, to think what God thinks about the world, to see the world as God's world, to respond to the world in a godly way, to obey him, to serve him, to give their lives to him. Education 
is an extension of the family, therefore. It's an extension of the covenantal duty of fathers and mothers in love toward their children, which is a reflection of their love toward their God. If you profess that Jehovah is one, if you have that orthodox confession of faith, and you walk with God in covenant with him, his word will become obsessive to you, and you will pass that on to the next generation, and you will diligently teach your children to do this. I'll ask you rhetorically, are we diligently teaching our children to walk in covenant with God, to see everything through the filter of God's word, to evaluate everything according to the teaching of God's revelation? If we turn our children over to unbelieving teachers 30 hours a week, while we spend, probably it's a high estimate, but four hours a week, trying to instill in them the teaching of God's Word. 30 hours to the world, to a way of thinking that ignores God, if not outright defies God, 30 hours a week for the world, four hours maybe at home and in church a week to counterbalance that. Would you consider that? I mean, if you were an employer, let's just put yourself in the position of the boss here. The boss says, I want you diligently to pursue the following project. And then you told the boss, after he asked an accounting of you, well, what I did is I did 30 hours of other things, and then four hours this week I pursued the project that you said I was to follow diligently. Do you think he would be pleased with your service? I mean, it's just common sense. We are not being diligent to make our children think all their thoughts in a way that conforms to God's Word when we give the vast majority of time to people that are conformed to the world, to worldly thinking and priorities. And then we try to counterbalance that with a minimal fraction of the time at home and in church. In the book of Deuteronomy, turn ahead to uh, chapter 11, verses 18 to 25. Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them your children, talking of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the doorpost of thy house and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied in the days of your children in the land which Jehovah swore unto your fathers to give them as the days of the heavens above the earth. For if you shall diligently keep all this command which I hand you to do it, to love Jehovah your God, to walk in all his ways, and to cleave unto him, then will Jehovah drive out all these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Every place whereon the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours, from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the hinder sea shall be your border. There shall no man be able to stand before you. Jehovah your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land, and you, sh and you shall tread upon it as he hath spoken unto you. Israel, in order to keep covenant with God and to enjoy dominion in the land, to know the blessing of God, Israel had to be faithful to its children. Faithful to its God to have his word written 
on their hearts and to live their lives out of their understanding that God has given them from his word. That faithfulness was not to be kept to them individually. They must pass it on to their children to have godly heritage, a covenant-keeping heritage, and then God would bless them in the land. I would imagine many of you, if you're thoughtful Christians at all, are concerned. Many of you are concerned that Christianity seems to be having not a great impact in the United States of America and perhaps a declining impact. The salt has lost its savor. We are not preserving our nation. We are not a light in darkness. We are not guiding, you know, the nation. We are not the most prominent influence. You know, when people talk about what is politically correct, they are not referring to thinking as Christians think when they use that expression. We are not the dominant influence. Why is it that everywhere we put our feet, to use a new covenant analogy to this promise of God, that that doesn't become our possession? Why are Christians, you see, the hinder part rather than the head? Why are we behind socially rather than leading? I want to suggest to you, you think about this and pray about it. If it isn't true, let me know, but I think it is true that the reason for this is that we have broken covenant with God, we've done two ways. First of all, we ceased to look at life in terms of God's word, every aspect of it. Tomorrow's conference is going to be talking about that, loving God with all of our mind. We don't see all areas of life in terms of the teaching of God's word. And so we have broken covenant with God there. But secondly, we have broken covenant with God because we've turned our children over to Moloch. We have not raised up a godly heritage where we can pass on covenant faithfulness through the generations because we have thought it would be perfectly acceptable to give our children to those who do not honor God, who do not walk with him, who do not see things in terms of his word. We give our children to covenant breakers, and then we're surprised that they don't grow up to be covenant keepers. Psalm 31, verses 12 and 13. I'm sorry, I said Psalm 31. I meant Deuteronomy 31, verses 12 and 13. Assemble the people, the men, the women, and the little ones, and thy sojourner that is within thy gates, that they may hear, and that they may learn, and fear Jehovah your God, and observe to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known, may hear, and learn to fear Jehovah your God as long as ye live in the land, whether ye go over the Jordan to possess it. You see that? You have a generational responsibility. It's not just all those now assembled before Jehovah who are to hear and to learn to do this law, but you're to hear this law, according to verse 13, that your children who have not yet known may hear and learn to follow Jehovah. Christianity is never meant to be just for this generation. Christianity and covenant faithfulness is something that you should expect to pass on to future generations. So a few moments ago I told you I thought it was provable from Scripture that education, the educing and the raising up and the edifying of our children is an extension of the family as the family keeps covenant with Jehovah. We've seen this in a number of places in the book of Deuteronomy and elsewhere in Scripture as well. We must not think naively that our children are going to learn to think God's thoughts after him when they are educated by teachers who do not honor God. 
We must not think beyond this. We must not have the mistaken assumption that the state schools are somehow, at present, value-free. State schools are not free of value. It's not as though we take children, we just educate them in the technological aspects of life. They learn to do math, they learn the facts of history, and that's all. When children are educated, they learn to think in terms of values. They learn to evaluate history and math and to see the world in a particular way. And they learn moral values as well, and what moral values are being taught in the public schools these days. The NEA, which was 75% of the teachers in America, promotes public funding, public funding, promotes public funding of abortion, affirmative action, gay rights, gun control, a nuclear freeze, income redistribution. 75% of the teachers in the public school are part of a union that promotes these things. How did we ever get the mistaken and naive idea that the public schools are value-free? They are not value-free. Now, God says, diligently teach your children to think in terms of my law to honor what I have said to you, to see the world as my world, and to walk in fidelity to me. You cannot turn over your children to a public school system and expect, well, they aren't going to get any values there. They'll get their values from home. They're going to pick up values there, just like they pick up the measles and the chicken pox from school as well. And can the public schools teach these values without teaching religion as well? Is it possible that the public schools would not have some outlook on the nature of reality and how we know what we know? Well, it's absolutely impossible. It's a very strange thing. It was pointed out just last month in an article by Joel Bells. I think it was um, really insightful. And he cites for us a statement by the governor of Colorado, Roy Romer, and I'm going to quote this for you. I mean, it is inconceivable, but this is what a leading public official has to say. And I quote, But before we give up on it, we ought to remember what the public school system has meant to us as the meeting ground for all kinds of Americans. When you encourage separate schools for Methodists, for Catholics, for Lutherans, when you divide youngsters by race, parents' view of creation, you become less like America and more like Bosnia. We ought to be careful where we go. Can you imagine that? Which is, he wasn't saying that to be outlandish, to be, if you will, the cutting edge, to say something provocative. He said that thinking, well, of course, everybody will fall in line with this. Everybody knows this to be true. The public school system's important because that's what America is like. In America, you don't think like Methodists or Catholics or Lutherans or divide according to a view of creation. In America, all those things are peripheral. In America, we put all those distinctions aside. He tells us we don't want to be like Bosnia. We wouldn't want to be sectarian or separatist and so forth. Well, my friends, who is it that has been sectarian in education for the last 20, 30, 40 years? 
Has it been the Christian schools? Now, for 11 years, I taught in a Christian school, in a high school setting. I was the dean of this program for a while as well. Before that, I took a PhD in philosophy, specializing in the theory of knowledge. I have some understanding of these things, some exposure to these things. Of course, I think my real expertise tonight is not what I've just told you, but rather the fact that I have a child that I love, four children that I love, and I want to be faithful to them. But in terms of my other expertise, if you will, I can assure you that in the Christian schools, children get exposed to all the points of view. And yes, it's true, that's so that we might show that one is true over against the others. But you see, in the Christian schools, just to take an example, children will find out about the theory of evolution as well as the creationist viewpoint. And they'll have a definite one before them. Now, it's not as though in the public schools they're going to hear both the creationist point of view and the evolutionary point of view, but then a preference given to evolution. In the public schools, they'll hear only one point of view. And yet we're called sectarian, and they're called the American way. Talk about hypocrisy. This is incredible. I was called upon a number of years ago to, uh, to function as the expert witness in philosophy for the Louisiana case, the equal treatment case, where it had become a law that was invalidated by the courts, but in, in the period of time when the court was hearing the case, uh, this law of equal treatment had said that any presentation of evidence for evolution had to be balanced with the evidence against evolution for the creationist or non-evolutionary point of view. And I was brought into this, and I saw it up close and personal. I'm telling you, it stinks. It's terrible. There is no interest in equal treatment fair play or hearing all points of view in the public school. The public school is rigorous and will defend even going to court and hiring ACLU lawyers to help them not have to present all points of view. And yet in a Christian school they hear all these different points of view. And we have the governor of Colorado tell us that we are sectarian and narrow, but the American way where everything you know stands on an equal footing is found in the public school. Rubbish. It is pure rubbish. The reality is, as Joel Bell says, that for nearly a century now, state-sponsored education in this country has increasingly taken on a strongly sectarian character. And he goes on to demonstrate this, and I'd like to use this as I close tonight. He, he demonstrates this in three ways. There are three grand truths that are taught by the Christian worldview. Now, of course, we could talk about many more than those, but overall, if, if you take your generic Christian things, you know, without getting into denominational differences about, say, predestination or infant baptism or what have you, but all Christians who read the Bible in an orthodox way know that the Bible teaches creation, the fall of man, and redemption through the work of Jesus Christ. Creation, fall, and redemption by Jesus Christ. Now let's just ask about those three things. Are the public schools neutral with respect to those three truths, which are at the very heart of the Christian faith? 
Or are the public schools sectarian in these areas, teaching a theology which is contrary to what our covenant-keeping God has taught us in His Word? It'll be obvious enough to you, I think, that modern science and state education have developed a rather perverse alliance in the 20th century. And the state schools bluntly challenge the pivotal truth that we hold as Christians that God created the heavens and the earth. State schools are not silent about that, saying, now you go home and you ask your parents about that. We don't get involved in that. The state schools do not hesitate to teach that the world came about because of some impersonal principles of physics way back when, when the Big Bang took place and when that which was infinitely small began to become that which was infinitely great. Don't you love this contradictory philosophy? It's, it's really uh, something easy to criticize from an apologetical standpoint. But the thing I want you to see tonight is this which we consider not only absurd philosophically, but immoral theologically, is presented as just common fear in the public schools. Creation didn't take place. The world has always been in one form or another, one state of matter or energy or what have you. And as you know, I don't have to belabor this, this would be bringing coals to Newcastle, the public schools don't hesitate to teach that the way in which man came about is not through a special God, but man is nothing more but an extension of the animal kingdom. And this brings us to the second point. We have taught as Christians throughout the history of the Christian church that mankind's problems, mankind's misery, trace back to the fact that man has fallen, that man has rebelled against God, and that man is a sinner. Is that what the public schools teach? No, the public schools teach as a natural consequence of evolutionary thought and the liberal idea that things get better and better, that men are not really fallen. Man does not have an internal problem of rebellion against his maker. In fact, we don't even know if man has a maker. Man's problems are swept away and rationalized by modern psychology. In case you haven't noticed it, if you've slept through the 20th century, modern psychology has become the handmaiden of the public school system. Public schools have just everywhere. And it's not just that they have the psychologists the children go to but the psychology that is taught to public school teachers and that they pass on to their children tells us that we don't want people to think badly of themselves. We certainly wouldn't want our children to have a low self-esteem. You don't teach children that they are fallen, depraved creatures that have no hope unless they submit to Jesus Christ for redemption and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Public schools don't teach that. They teach what is contrary to that. And then we wonder why our children don't hear the gospel and don't see their problem and don't respond in faith. And thirdly, I said three great truths in Christianity, creation, fall, and redemption. Obviously, the, uh, the most glorious theme of the Bible is God's redemption through Jesus Christ. God made us. And we once walked with him, but then we fell from that blessed position and brought misery on ourselves and eternal damnation because of our sinfulness. But his grace has sought us out. God has overcome the problem created by man's rebellion. And God has done this through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to bear 
the punishment of our sin. Now, is that what is taught in the public schools? Is that the way the human predicament is dealt with in the public schools? No, as a matter of law, not just as a matter of preference now, but as a matter of law, teachers in the public schools may not tell children that Jesus Christ is the Savior of men. By the way, if you're a public school teacher and you happen to believe that, you may not say that even as your own personal opinion in the public schools. Now, when I go around giving lectures like this, I'll often have people tell me, well, I'm a Christian in the public schools, and they leave me alone when I say these things. I'm saying, well, that may be the exception to the rule. I, I can't tell you how consistent the enforcement is, but I do know that by law you may not do that. Which raises an interesting question. If you're getting away with it and you're a Christian, children to be lawbreakers because you can get away with breaking the law. I mean, in other places we condemn people for doing it, but then when we do it for a pious cause, we as Christians somehow think we're exonerated and it's all right. By law, you may not tell children that Jesus is the Messiah. You may not tell children that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but by him. In fact, the public school system will tell us that we can look to the state for our salvation, we can look to psychology for our salvation, we can look to money, we can look to any number of things to take care of the human predicament, but the one thing you cannot say is that Jesus is the Savior of men. The only answer to the human predicament that is precluded in the state-sponsored classroom, as Joel Bells points out, is the Christian answer. So let me quote Bells again. <clears throat> he speaks of the three great questions that ought to be of interest in every educational setting. Where did we come from? <clears throat> How did we get in the fix we're in? What can we do about it? And they are the very three questions, he says, to which Christian answers are in most public settings today officially excluded. The state has taken our money and wants to take our children to tell them that we are, in what we believe most devoutly, wrong about creation, wrong about sin, and wrong again about redemption. Now, have I presented to you something that is really kind of peripheral or extreme or radical tonight? Or have I brought to you things that really should be obvious to all of us? The public school system cannot cooperate with Christianity. The public school system precludes the Christian view on the three most precious things in our faith, creation, fall, and redemption. Again, says, some folks trace the paganization of American education back to the Supreme Court rulings limiting prayer and Bible reading in public schools. In fact, those rulings were merely symptomatic of the problem rather than its roots. The system was already infected with rot, challenging the Christian faith in the most sectarian way possible. Now, the problem with the uh, public schools is not that people can't pray there. That's just one of the symptoms. The problem in the public school is that you can't think as a Christian there. You can't teach as a Christian there. And because you love your children, in covenant faithfulness to God, you cannot, you may not, send your children there. The first and great commandment 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind requires that your children be dedicated to God, and you diligently teach them in the ways of covenant faithfulness, and you not conform, but see them as consecrated unto the Lord. And therefore, you can't teach them, you cannot turn them over to teachers who will ignore creation, fall, and redemption, or actually explicitly oppose those three themes. Here's the word of the Lord. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4. Bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's why I believe in Christian education. That's why I believe in Christian homeschooling and the development of Christian schools, whether they're parent-run or church-run. We don't need to get into those distinctions tonight. But I believe with all my heart that what is taught to our children must conform to our conviction as Christians and must demonstrate faithfulness in covenant with God. Otherwise, we ask our children to sit in the scoffer's seat. Psalm 1, verse 1. tells us that the godly man doesn't sit in the scoffer's seat. Why then would I, if I'm a godly man, and I wish I were more, But if I wish to be a godly man, why would I ask my son Michael to sit in the seat of scoffers in the public school classroom? I have broken covenant with God if I do so. Let me leave you with this quote by Cornelius Van Til in a book entitled Essays on Christian Education. Van Til says, it is our task as Christian educators to teach those who belong to Christ the things that will encourage them to wish to belong to Christ with all their heart and mind. That is to say, it is our task to develop the minds and hearts of the children of the covenant of God's grace so that they will want to be self-conscious Christians as they develop to full maturity. Jesus says, when the student comes to full maturity, he'll be like his teacher task is to see to it that our children come to be like teachers that are covenant keepers rather than covenant breakers. And if we do not do that, it's not just the teachers that have broken covenant with God. It's we ourselves as Christian parents who have done so. I'm going to ask Jeff to come back here and give you a few announcements, and then we'll take a few minutes to answer questions that you might have about this evening's presentation. Thank you. get to do some housekeeping again. As we're thinking upon what we heard this evening, I'm certain that questions have been prompted. We'd appreciate it if you could write down your questions, legibly. I'm borderline glaucomic, so please write large as well. And uh, we'll be passing them to the aisle. Jeff Kizar, uh, a friend of our group, will be collecting them. I'd like to upon what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, oh, by the way, if you're interested in tax deductions and that sort of thing, you can make a donation to our group, Sovereign Redeemer Church. Um, but before you do so, make sure you're tithing to your own church first. Um, tomorrow we'll be studying the mind, uh, the Christian mind. Uh, the syllabus, again, will be distributed to every participant. And we'll be discussing four basic topics. First of all, what does it mean to love God with all your mind? We'll look at some obstacles to that. 
the nature of belief and unbelief, and what, what is worldview? We'll move on then to uh, discuss the worldviews, the various ones, and how that works. And then in number two, the session that will begin probably about 10.30, we'll learn how to be trained to discern that which is good from that which is evil, to be trained in those areas so that we might not simply have milk, but that we might, in fact, desire the meat of the Word of God. We'll look at why Dr. Bonson will give us some tools to deal with these issues as we confront them in our workplace and then apply them to our lives. The third session after lunch is going to be an interesting one because it deals, there's a picture of Attila the Hun here getting whacked. Uh, You'll have to pick up your syllabus tomorrow. Uh, How to discern and disarm common non-Christian worldviews. Intellectual karate in a loving way. Yes, with gentleness and with reverence. I'm a lawyer. I don't know too much about that loving way stuff, but... Uh, Dr. Bonson is quite serious that these will be the Christian way to deal with these things, not as an academic uh, exercise. And we want to leave you with personal applications as well. So I'd encourage you to be here. We hope to start promptly at 9 o'clock. Again, we appreciate any help with this, but again, uh, Sovereign Redeemer Fellowship is providing this. We don't want the gospel to go out for a price, uh, but anything you can contribute would be uh, helpful. Just put it in a bucket that's down. Are the questions here yet? First question is is interesting. Um, What about the rumors we hear that Russia is taking an initiative in bringing Christian education to their school children in public schools? Dr. Bonson just uh, returned from Russia not too long ago. When I was in Russia, I was very interested to find out what the state was willing to tolerate in terms of uh, religious influence or Christian influence. And... uh, that at the time that communism fell in Russia, and in a sense all the previous restraints fell away, there was kind of an open door given and headmasters and teachers in schools were pretty much allowed to do whatever they wanted to do. That might sound like uh, good news to us who are Christians because now Bibles could be distributed in the public schools and in fact some Christian uh, curriculum uh, has been used at various places in Russia uh, for teaching of uh, school children because those who have resented communism uh, realize you have to bring something now into the vacuum to fill in uh, what was previously the worldview and the direction that communism offered, and so they're willing to look to Christianity uh, to do this. Um, the downside is that uh, even though evangelicals have had uh, some window of opportunity in Russia, that window is closing very, very rapidly. The Russian Orthodox Church is not at all with the outside Western influence, even in religious areas, that has been brought by evangelicals. And um, not too long ago, a bill was passed that forbade uh, diaconal and educational and evangelistic work to be done by religious organizations from outside of Russia unless the Russian Orthodox Church would approve of their presence and their practices and so forth. And so what's going to happen, I'm not a prophet, but I think just from a human standpoint, you can see that on the horizon, if Russia continues to be a free nation, at this point it looks like in some measure it's going to be, the Russians are going to have to face this question of um, 
how much does the government do in terms of restricting freedom of religion and imposing a particular religious point of view? Because if the public schools in Russia were to start um, teaching from the standpoint of the Russian Orthodox Church, that might be better than communism, but it's certainly not the evangelical, Bible-believing, covenant-keeping that I was trying to promote here tonight. Um, and so we need to pray for the people in Russia. They need to resolve the political question of freedom of religion, and then I think they are going to have to, through that, face the question of uh, how should education be done in Russia, and what kind of freedom should be allowed there, and then there will be hope for the future, that if they have free schools and a free nation, then a Christian perspective can be taught. But we certainly don't want to endorse the idea of the state schools imposing Christianity when then that means the state can also determine what Christianity is that's going to be imposed. Another question is, is this, uh, give advice to those parents, Christian parents who have been trained in, their, in the public schools who now want to break that pattern of thinking and then begin reorienting their uh, children. Right. Well, I'm really glad for that question, and I can't give you in a thumbnail sketch, of course, all the detail that you may be looking for. We can follow this up later. You can write to me. If you... But the first thing that I would tell you who are Christian parents who want to break with uh, your previous educational experience and give that which is better to your children is to trust yourself as God's children. Do not be tyrannized by those who say you have to be an expert in education to know what to do for your children. I much more trust you as a person who has a godly, regenerated heart seeking to obey God with your even limited understanding of Scripture than I trust the educational psychologist and those people who teach education and, and, uh, and teach teachers how they're supposed to teach and so forth. You do not need to be an expert in that sense to know what is best for your children. One of the first things you're going to have to ask yourself is whether you feel that there's a local Christian school where Christians can gather their resources and, and have a division of labor uh, where your children can be brought up in a basically Christian way to think God's thoughts after him, or whether you yourself wish to be the one that educates your children to face this question of Christian school or Christian home schooling. And I'm not going to take you know sides on that. I think there's a place for both, and uh, different families for different reasons are going to feel one suits their purposes. You need to remember that God will hold you accountable for the way your children think and the way they are taught to think and the priorities that are brought to them. And so you look for those that you trust to entrust your children to for education, or you, um, you trust that God is going to give you the resources and the insight to find the curriculum and to educate them at home the way that you should. Um, it turns out that when God brings about a revolution in our lives, it usually doesn't affect just one little narrow area of our lives. And I have found that when Christians finally get it into their heads, we must change our outlook and make sure that our children are educated in a way that's covenantally faithful. That comes hand in hand with the need to reform their financial priorities and principles as well. As you'll find that if you're going to educate your children in a way that's faithful to God, it's going to cost you. It will cost you because of the tuition you've got to pay at the Christian school, or it will cost you because of the time you've got to give up from your own vocation and calling to do the education of your children at home. 
And I hate to tell you this, but often that is the stumbling block for Christians. They simply can't, you know, surmount that economic burden. And so they say, well, since the state is already taxing me for this service, then I'm going to, I'm going to have to turn my children over to the state. But you have to remember, it's not a service, it's a disservice to you that the state is charging you for. Jesus says you've got to pay your taxes. I mean, whose, whose impression is on the coin? So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but don't turn your children over to Caesar. And so if you're going to have a revolution in your educational philosophy and outlook and what you do in your home, my guess is you're also going to have to restructure your financial problem. You make provision to keep covenant with God, either by taking your time to educate your children or paying for the time of someone else that you trust to do so. Well, that's just the thumbnail sketch of some of the things I can begin to tell you. Uh, those of you who want to turn away from your educational experience and provide what is better for your children, I commend you for that change. I call upon you to pay the price that it will require. What happens when the kids are ready for college? Is a Christian college uh, mandatory? And then the comment is, what do you do with your own children? Right. This question of um, whether Christian education ought to continue through the college years is, um, I think, hung on the very important issue of how you view college education. Because in our English vocabulary, we call grade school school, and we call college schooling as well, because all of it's broad, the broad rubric of education. Um, it's easy to think that what we are talking about in terms of covenant faithfulness to our children would therefore have to extend all the way through their lives up through college, graduate school, and what have you. Um, I don't happen to believe that that premise is true. I think that there are some distinctions that need to be drawn that are not often drawn, and I'm going to draw that distinction. But before I do, I want to say that I think even having drawn the distinction is preferable for your, your children to go to Christian college. And if there were a Christian graduate school, there wasn't in philosophy, I, I didn't have that option, but it would have been preferable to have that if there were a competent Christian graduate school uh, that I could have attended. But now let me draw that distinction. There is a time when children leave their home and they go out and they enter, if you will, the vocational world. Let's forget college for a moment here. Because after they go, to, they're going to enter that vocational world as well. And we know from the teaching of the Apostle Paul that uh, when we go out in the world, we associate with unbelievers. We work with unbelievers. We, if you will, have the challenge of the world that we have to deal with as we emerge from the educative, nurturing process of our families. And we try to develop our own families and our, our own reputation and testimony in our community and so forth. Everybody realizes that at some point, children cross that line from what they have been brought up in their home to do to their now interaction and interfacing with the world. My own conviction is that that takes place when they go to college as well. That um, if you have not trained your children to think God's thoughts after him and now prepared them to interface with the world, by the time they get to college, then it's only by God's grace that college is going to make up the difference. 
Now, I, w I think it'd be wonderful if all of you can send your children to Christian college, do so. I usually teach people that it is covenant unfaithfulness at the point that their children leave the family and now interface with the world, to now go take their faith to the world, have it challenged in college, and so forth. Um, where possible, my children go to Christian college. However, I have not exclusively used college, uh, Christian college training for my children. Um, there are a number of reasons uh, why that is true, even though I think it is preferable if all things are equal to do that. Because by the time my children got to be 18 years old, in my estimation as a Christian parent, that's where I have done my job of raising them up, and it's now, you know, with prayer to God, I send them out into the world and say, now live your faith, encounter the world, you know, be salt, be light, and so forth. Some start right out by going into the workplace. Some go to college, then to the workplace. But I think by the time they're 18 years old, you should have educated them as a Christian parent. And so I don't have the same conclusive convictions about Christian education when it comes to college because of my view of college. Now, you may not share that view of college. And uh, if you don't, then I would understand readily why you would not come to the same conclusions I have about the option of, of encountering the world at the college level. Well, I have the principles supporting Christian education, so clearly developed by Dr. Bonson, alluded a number and perhaps a majority of our Christian pastors and leaders who do not support Christian education? Well, the answer to the question is not really difficult to come up with, but it is difficult in a polite setting to tell you because I don't like to be the bearer of bad news. Um, and I certainly don't say it with any sense of self-righteous superiority. But you must understand that the vast majority of Christian pastors in our land today don't even understand the Bible, much less the Christian view, and how it relates to the world. Um, when you come back tomorrow, I'm not going to dwell on this and, and carp about it, but you have to understand, we have entered in the 20th century a day of abysmal biblical ignorance in the church. Not simply among the laity, but among those who are ordained and who are teachers in the church as well. Um, what I'm getting at is the problem of pastors not seeing the need to show their, their uh, parishioners the necessity of Christian education is much bigger than the problem of Christian education. But now, over and above biblical ignorance and the failure to be theologically orthodox and sound, the fact is that most pastors have not through, thought through the necessity of Christian thinking for themselves in all areas of life. And if they haven't thought that through, how many pastors, for instance, would say there is a Christian obligation to vote in terms of Christian principles of politics? In a statistical survey, the vast majority of pastors would say, oh, of course not. Haven't you heard of the separation of church and state? The church has nothing to do with the state. You see, they don't even understand what the separation of church and state is all about. Because, of course, I'd say the church doesn't have anything to do with running the state, and the state has nothing to do with running the church. But the state has everything to do with the authority of God and His Word, because the state is under the direction of God as the Lord of Lords, even as the church is. But most pastors have this knee-jerk reflex that you have religious matters over here, then you have secular matters over there, like the state. <clears throat> and now let me piggyback on that answer, and they would put education there too. 
Most pastors tend to be traditionalist when it comes to um, uh, interfacing with the world. Because if you're not a traditionalist, then you're a controversialist. And if you say things which are controversial, you know what happens to congregations, especially if you have a fairly big congregation? You start worrying to see people fall off because they don't like controversy. Who wants to go to church and feel like, you know, someone's rocking the boat? <clears throat> I don't want, please don't think that I'm, I've got some kind of a sugar low and I'm in a bad mood tonight, and that's why I'm telling you these things. I tell you these things with a heavy heart, but with open eyes. Most pastors are more concerned about maintaining their program and their kingdom and large attendance than they are with being prophetically faithful to the Word of God. I'm not going to say every single pastor is like that. Well, I'll, let me tell you this. I'm a pastor who is aware of this problem, and I hate it when I find myself compromising with those tendencies. I know that they are there. So when you ask the question, why don't pastors teach the need for Christian education? Because you do that, and what happens to all the public school teachers and administrators in your congregation? Well, now they feel indirectly, not directly insulted or condemned, and now you've created problems. And not only that, in American society, the school system has become something of a substitute shrine. I saw this in California. You wouldn't believe the rhetoric when Proposition 174 was proposed about the kind of attack on Americanism, on what we hold precious and dear in California, that this is supposed to represent. And so you as a pastor, if you say something that is socially controversial like that, I mean, you're attacking one of the sacred cows of America, the public school system. And the sad fact is that most pastors will not pay the price of fidelity there, and so they're either quiet about it, or they have in their own mind found some way to rationalize the need for covenant faithfulness in this area. Um, I think things get better, though, as pastors... Um, reflect on what you heard tonight and, and a lot of literature that's available to talk about the need for a Christian education and for uh, thinking all things through in terms of covenant faithfulness and so forth, you do see pastors who are, who are willing to be sanctified and to go back and correct previous mistakes and in some cases even pay the price of seeing diminishing returns in their congregation. More pastors are coming to this. What happens when the church is unfaithful, as it has been in this area, I believe, is that then the world gets worse and worse. And then as the world gets worse and presents more of a threat to us, eventually, it's sad, God's people wake up and they start saying, oh, we don't want all this horrible stuff that's going on in the world. And once things get that bad, then there's some hope for people to go back and re-examine their assumptions, and you'll see pastors turn the corner and start teaching this to their, to their people. In the end, we'll either make that turn in the Christian church or we will see the end of Christianity in American culture. I'm not a pessimist. I think we're going to turn things around. But I am, I am a pessimist about my generation. We live in a very bad day, I think.